70 record closing highs so far for the day. Blasting through a ceiling. In a record-setting IPO. Investors who have been riding the wave. When the stock market is booming, we're made to believe the economy is booming. As the stock market goes, so goes the wealth and the health and economy. So what exactly is the stock market measuring? 98.4 Capital FM. Today is Tuesday, the 30th of January 2024 and it is time for the financial forecast a show that seeks to delve into matters economy finance and money matters nyambura ndongo alongside kengishinga chief economist mentor economics and today we do have a special guest who we are going to be introducing later in the show so ken january has finally come to an end and to be quite honest in a very long time I can say I did not feel January. Like I cannot say it was a long January. You know the way everybody says it was very long. Uh, I can't attest to that. Maybe you can tell us how has your January been and welcome to the show. Uh, thank you very much, Nyambura. Indeed, it has been a very unique January. You know, it rained the first half of it. Yeah. So we have a very green January um, I don't know if you've noticed, there have been a lot of butterflies of late. If you've I saw the grasshoppers. <laughs> there were many. <laughs> That's yeah. true. And very huge ones. And we ended with the normal January sun mm-hmm. towards today and tomorrow. So it's a very unique one. Yeah. Um, I think it should be a, a good February. Okay. I would expect that. Mm-hmm. But I'm very excited about um, today's episode. Did you feel the January? They call it in January. <laughs> Who doesn't? <Deborah? laughs> really? Unless you don't live in Nairobi. It feels Everybody. like it was just December the other day. I think because we were busy doing forecasting and planning, that month literally flew. Like, anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm happy it's the 30th of January. And yeah, today I think we have a very uh, brilliant show because can, uh, you know, for a long time, we are going to be ending the show on a very hopeful note. <laughs> from the wise words we are going to be getting today. So it's going we promise it's going to be a very interesting show. Uh, buckle up. Uh, take a notebook. I think this one will be one for the books. And uh, ensure you listen to us at 98.4 Capital FM. You can catch us online uh, at www.capitalfm.co.ke slash listen live. We value your comments and your feedback. Please reach us on 0701. 984984 and our socials Facebook and X at Capital FM Kenya hashtag financial forecast. Now, as we set in and start our week, we can take time and get our weekly report from the one and only Mentoria Economics by doing an email to info at mentoria.co.ke. And Ken promised us this year is going to be a bit different and we are going to be getting much better information, timely and very accurate, which uh, is a very brief um, weekly analysis of what we anticipate is going to be happening, what happened, and what is going to be happening within the week. So, Ken, uh, any highlight of what has been happening last week in terms of uh, the U.S. inflation, you know, (laughs) elections? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think uh, the big story today globally is uh, the Fed okay. will be meeting mm-hmm. um, to set interest rates. Uh, that has a big impact. The meetings on are back. The global economic. In fact, if there is one meeting yeah. that determines the global economic uh, outlook, yeah. it's uh, when the Fed sits. And the expectation is they will hold interest rates steady. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a lot of people are looking more for clues or not, they'll, they'll do in their March meeting. I think okay. in March, some people are starting to feel they might start uh, lowering interest rates. Mm-hmm. And already you're seeing the S&P last week hits its record, record high. high yep. So that expectation that rates will cut, but mm-hmm. I still feel that's a bit too soon, possibly in the summer, but people are already starting to feel maybe March. But for today's meeting, I expect it to just, uh, the rates will be held steady. Okay, I know when we were preparing, you said um, the U.S., is doing better. Europe <laughs> is not doing so well, and as well China. So maybe I think by next week we shall unpack more as to what is happening. Let me tell you something that has happened. You know, last week we discussed um, how Angola decided enough is enough. I am leaving this uh, economic block. 
guess what happened <laughs> <laughs> within the week, if I can say. So Niger, uh, Mali, and Burkina Faso have quit the West African bloc. Uh, ECOWAS. Tell us again. Yeah, yeah, absolutely spot on, Yambura. It seems this is a year of quitting <laughs> membership. <laughs> <laughs> Memberships that don't work. Yeah. And uh, indeed, Angola was the situation last week. Mm-hmm. And uh, this week, you know, when everybody is enjoying the AFCON games, right. Burkina Faso, Mali, and Niger mm-hmm. uh, on Sunday issued quite a, v- a very moving statement yeah. on the state of ECOWAS. Mm-hmm. ECOWAS is the economic community that brings West African states. It was set up in 1975 Mm -hmm. with the idea of fostering trade, movement, and uh, common cohesion. Um, So these three countries issued a joint statement on Sunday, really saying that uh, the bloc has uh, veered away from its Pan-African ideals, and uh, really they want out. And um, they might actually even form their own Okay. Entity called the Alliance of Sahel States. So, a lot happening. Obviously, ECOWAS has issued a statement saying, you know, you have to give a one year notice uh, before you withdraw. <laughs> so, there's quite a bit of back and forth because it has Whoa. economic yeah, um, significance. Sure. Yeah. And uh, so, it's, it's definitely uh, one to watch in terms of the continental outlook. Uh, what was part of the frustrations that they actually feel if uh, in a general outlook like why do they feel our our end is not we're not meeting our end of the bargain or we're not getting sorry our end of the bargain uh, well i think um the watershed moment okay. was in august 2020 when uh, mali staged a coup mm-hmm. uh, and was hit with a lot of sanctions and these other countries felt uh, their sovereignty has sort of been breached and since then okay. west africa has been a series of coups mm-hmm. Some people suspect there's a Russian hand to this oh. uh, because some of these, the three countries have sort of developed a closer ties to right. Putin uh-huh. and less to France. But there's always been that colonial uh, feel that maybe West African countries have not developed as much. So okay. it's, it's, it's quite loaded. But I think August 2020 was the real watershed moment. And since then, um, these three countries have been sort of um, having these discussions um, obviously, ECOWAS will be trying its best to mm, bring to them back mm. because it's, it gets its power from its membership. Yeah. And when its membership is uh, three That's less, yeah, uh, definitely in terms of trade, economic opportunities, okay. it makes it much weaker. So uh, I think uh, they also tied other issues of security, mm-hmm. saying ECOWAS has not helped in oh, the fight against okay. terrorism okay. And, and, and such. But one does feel there's a sense of sovereignty mm. flexing okay. that's taking place in those three countries. Um, how how do we see this playing out for the economic impact? One, for Africa. Are, are they such key global um, continental players in ECOWAS that the impact is going to be felt immediately? Well, I think... There has been a big push, and we've talked about it on this show, about the uh, Pan-African continental market, Mm -hmm. the African Continental uh, Free Trade Agreement, which should form the largest uh, free trade market (laughs) in the world. And the easiest way to achieve that was to bring the regional blocs together, Together. East African Community, SADC, ECOWAS. Now, if these blocs are already falling apart, that whole process starts falling apart. And I think people thinking about trade have to think hard mm-hmm. about trade. And I was really reflecting on it today. Yeah. Uh, much of the African continental free trade has been bringing together the former colonial states together into forming one market. Mm-hmm. But economic history doesn't really support that notion. And I, and I keep saying our economics needs to be informed by history. Right. So if you look at East Africa, for example, Kenya, Tanzania, even Mozambique, yeah. uh, places like Beira Port in Mozambique, the Sofala area, mm-hmm. they actually had closer ties with the Middle East Dan. and the Far East. Mm-hmm. So if you look at the tra- the ancient a city called Sofala yeah. in Mozambique, it has great ties with the Arab world. Mm-hmm. Zanzibar has great ties with the Arab world and the Far East. Mm-hmm. So I've always said, as we think about trade links, let's look at ancient migration and actually you might find actually there's a richer 
uh, vein of trade. Right. And we need to look at this historical. And I think some of these crumblings yeah. might actually start forcing people to think, what are the natural trade patterns? Mm-hmm. And how do we build now meaningful trade blocks from the natural historical uh, trade movements? Yeah. That have, have been have been there and have been experienced. Right. I can tell you one thing Kenya is going to be grappling with is our trade and that's because stories that made the headlines this weekend was that manufacturers are hurting. Now we have discussed the factors of production and how important they are to this economy. But we have seen the defaults, the bank defaults and manufacturers are actually leading up to being the key people who are actually leading in bank defaults. Is this a reflection of the economy, the taxation, uh, the unemployment? But at the same time, do you think that there are people who are actually taking advantage of such a situation uh, to say that generally we are not really doing so well, but maybe uh, companies who have um, very l- higher exports. I mean, they would not necessarily be struggling with the same thing as a local manufacturer who actually has to get so many things being imported. You're absolutely spot on. Manufacturing has been struggling. Um, one of the government policies mm. has to be has been to increase the contribution of manufacturing yeah. from nine to fifteen percent of mm. GDP. Unfortunately, the taxation policies have made it a bit difficult. Right. Um, if you look at just the excise tax alone, mm-hmm. that has to be reported within 24 hours. Now think of a big manufacturing firm, yeah. you know, that's selling FMCG. Right. For you to be able to reconcile within 24 hours, you'll actually end up hiring more accountants <laughs> than floor, <laughs> floor workers. <laughs> that's the irony uh, of it all. So the excise right. tax has made it more expensive, uh-huh. obviously financing costs, have gone up. Importation, the dollar has weakened. Yes. So importation costs have gone up. Mm. And on the demand side, the consumer s- has purchasing power has, has been eroded by yes. inflation. Right. Uh, because we're not seeing a lot of wages mm. uh, sort of like recalibrating, keeping up with inflation. So that combination of higher cost of production and a weaker clientele obviously has made our manufacturing companies definitely are much more exposed. Uh, they are now leading in yeah. terms of non-performing loans. Mm-hmm. They have ex- um, even exceeded traders who are the highest yeah. because of uh, delayed payments. And yes. our manufacturing are leading are that. Leading. Are there people who are taking advantage? Obviously, there is always, you know, like during COVID, yeah. remember, there are people <laughs> who took advantage uh, during COVID. So yeah. I could see some manufacturers saying, maybe this is our opportunity to avoid... Uh, and just Either. write that narrative. Okay. So think of a CFO who today reads the papers and sees manufacturing segments is defaulting. Is defaulting. And he has the ability to pay. Mm-hmm. He might actually say, you know, l- let me also play this card, <laughs> not pay, put that installment in a fixed deposit, I'll get, get interest. Return. So it's it's a very there are people who can take advantage. Yeah. So uh, obviously the banks are very keen. Yes. To make sure they rein in. Uh, because manufacturing companies can create high-quality jobs. Exactly. If you look at the Singapore's, mm-hmm. the Korea's, the United States, right. what creates strong jobs is manufacturing. manufacturing. So we badly need to have very good manufacturing And I um, know uh, one thing that came about was the excise tax, and uh, we saw how that affected a very uh, key industry, as we can see it. So what exactly, maybe... Uh, for the benefit of those who really do not understand what is the impact of these 24 hours. Maybe you can explain. So why am I being taxed? And why am I needing to take a loan to pay a tax? So let's say um, manufacturing soap, for Mm. example. Mm. I'm a big soap uh, manufacturer. Right. And obviously I don't sell my products directly to the public. I sell it through distributors, who sell it through retailers. So there are almost four levels before it gets to you and me um, as individuals. So when the distributor buys it from me, Mm -hmm. um, already that transaction has happened and I must pay the excise tax. Even before the distributor 
sells it to the supermarket and the supermarket to the individual. So even before the real profit is recognized, you have to you have to send it because it's 24 hours. So you end up having to employ a lot more accountants than soap (laughs) soap producers. That becomes the irony of it all. (laughs) And to the point when you even start having to borrow money to to actually pay the tax, pay tax. So. You know, when you talk about principles of taxation and mm. Adam Smith yes. in his Wealth of Nations yes. talked about the principles of taxation. Mm. He said tax principles have to be just, yes, uh, but they also have to be administratively uh, easy, Sound. convenient. Yes, If something is too difficult and you have to have a, a battery of accountants, yeah. then it means um, actually incentivize people uh, to, right. to, 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 to dodge such it. things. Yes. So I think as, and I know th- right now the treasury is working on a new tax policy okay. these are the things that they need to ask when a new tax policy proposal comes in ask is it first just mm. number two is it administratively cumbersome and if it is we might end up paying losing actually, actually using tax, more yeah. spending more money yeah. than, than collecting it okay. and, and 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 that so we really hope as the new tax policy is being drafted these are some of the things um, that will come up. Do you think they need public participation for that? Absolutely. Yeah. And not during Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> Through an email. <laughs> during working hours. That is likely responded. <laughs> Can we have a special guest today? <laughs> Please do have the pleasure <laughs> of introducing our guest today. Indeed. Today we are so privileged mm-hmm. to have uh, a special guest. Indeed, it's going to be quite a treat. Yeah. And I think all our listeners are very keen. We have the pleasure of having Yusuf Keshavji. Mm-hmm. Mr. Keshavji is a shareholder of the White Rose Group of Companies, a 72-year-old company which includes a network of over 60 dry cleaning service outlets in Kenya, Uganda, as well as a beach resort <laughs> at the coast. Nice. Um, Obviously, if you're Kenyan, you must have gone into a white rose dry cleaner at some point. Aside from his uh, professional work, he has Mm -hmm. been heavily involved in a volunteering capacity for the past 15 years as a trustee on the International Board of the Aga Khan University, Mm -hmm. uh, as well as a chairman of the Aga Khan Foundation East Africa for over 10 years. He has been a member of the Rotary Club mm-hmm. of Nairobi since 1978 and is also extremely passionate about social enterprise. One of his, uh, one of, uh, he's one of the founders of Honeycare Africa, an award-winning social enterprise, the first of its kind in the region, impacting on the livelihoods of 20,000 farmers. He's a graduate mm-hmm. with an honors degree from the London School of Economics, as well as an, from an executive program at the Harvard Business School. And he is no stranger to presidents. Yeah. He has received a head of state commendation by former president Mwai Kibaki mm-hmm. and was one of four delegates representing Kenya at President Obama's Entrepreneurship Summit held in Washington, D.C. in 2010. Welcome to Capital FM, Yusuf. Thank you. Thank you. And welcome to Financial Focus. Yep. Thank you. Yeah. That is quite a very heavy introduction. (laughs) 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 So I'm sure our listeners are really like White Rose, Yusuf, (laughs) Harvard, (laughs) and The Connection. So just, uh, just a brief overview. 72 years in business operation. That is how long you have been in business. 72 years. Right. Started in 1952 in dry cleaning. Right. And um, this is our third generation of the family. I tell you, Ken, today we are taking (laughs) notes. We are taking so many notes. So let's take a brief history as to how you got here. Yusuf, you were born in South Africa, but you landed in Kenya. How? Okay, that's an interesting question. Yes. You know, South Africa, my grandfather emigrated from India to South Africa in the 1870s. Right. And he came to South Africa 
there was a form of kalabar from the very beginning mm-hmm. but there were opportunities and uh, they continued there but i think the the real test where i think my father decided to emigrate yeah. was when the government the africana government in 1948 institutionalized mm-hmm. apartheid right and living under apartheid was extremely mm. difficult because i want to just give you two examples yes one is my father had a strong strong social bias to all the everything he did right so he used to want to he had a cinema in pretoria mm-hmm. and he used to have uh, young artists performing there give oh. them an opportunity to perform and there was an 18 year old girl maria makeba right who performed there a week later he was called by the police department that how oh. are you asking young africans to entertain africans at your cinema it was amazing and this woman became world famous she is yeah but then you see he was immediately attacked by the police department that you allowing young africans to perform there it's just you know the same the principles of yes. apartheid yes. you know them yeah then there's another example two of my cousins by the way mm-hmm. Uh, were political prisoners they were activists of the first order fighting apartheid from the word go since they were 18 19 and there's one example i heard of yesterday right there was a man who who who, who saved for 15 years to buy a, to build a house in durban which is the indian ocean coast right and after 5 years of living there the government declared that as a white area oh oh he had to leave that place go elsewhere in south africa lost all his money no compensation no compensation that was apartheid and there's an uncle of mine who had a bakery and they would bring in just at random regulations right to say you can't sell bread before 8:00 in the morning most people would buy bread from 6 to 8 but That's because he's indian he's not white right they started putting in these regulations so the bread it, business collapsed it has to collapse of course so these are the type of laws and regulations that came in just affecting all non whites because there the asians and the africans were both as non whites that's that's what i was it actually wasn't wanting it wasn't a three tier yeah. system like okay. in kenya you know yeah the, the asian the european <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. but there it was all non whites it is either white or yeah, non white or nothing <laughs> so that's why you had all these stations and restaurants only whites. whites only whites benches at parks only some whites. areas you couldn't go into and they'd affect your business and move you totally. completely to another area so it was difficult okay so i think to avoid that type of life yeah he decided he wants to emigrate and he came he decided he went to kampala to dar es salaam mm. nairobi he wanted east africa yeah. definitely okay and he came he decided on nairobi because nairobi is such a beautiful city <laughs> it's got the climate it's got the environment it's got the beautiful trees it's got everything and right. so he decided it's going to be nairobi but why why did he think east africa it was Or partly you know i think we were greatly influenced by two people yeah in our lives mm-hmm. one is mahatma gandhi okay who was in South Africa in 1901 19 till 1907 and he was a very close friend of my grandfather's and he felt just totally at a loss he felt that South Africa is not going to improve whatsoever and he must have had some influence yeah. the influence on in our family was both social which we talk about uh, justice mm-hmm. social justice that came from Mahatma Gandhi right and his highness the aga khan also felt that they had very positive uh, views about east africa and so i think that was the two areas that he says i want to settle in east africa so it was either kenya uganda or tanzania and, and he decided, decided on it's kenya it's going to be kenya <laughs> now we shall be discussing more uh when we come back from the break it is now 7 o'clock with kcb and you're listening to 98.4 capital fm So KCB is the bank that is inspired by people who want to do better. KCB for people for better.
98.4 Capital FM. Good evening. This is the financial forecast, and you are with me, Nyamburandongo, alongside Kengishinga, Chief Economist, Mentoria Economics. And today we do have a guest, and Yusuf was giving us a story about how they landed into Kenya. So, Yusuf, tell us after you landed to Kenya, what happened next? Okay, so we, we came to Kenya and we shipped to Bombasa and drove to Nairobi. I'll just you, I was eight years old. Right. Innocent eight-year-old coming from Johannesburg and Pretoria, which was like Chicago and New York, oh. with high-rises, escalators, <laughs> everything. Right. So we drove into Nairobi, and this eight-year-old kid asked my father that we're coming to settle in this village <laughs> because there was just one row of lights, which was government road which is now more Avenue. <laughs> so my father says, you know, Yusuf, okay. you will taste freedoms in this country that you've you never been enough. able to taste elsewhere. Right. And that was like <laughs> foretelling the future. Yeah. Because it was so beautiful, yes. you know, and I just said, yeah, okay, let's move on. Yeah. <laughs> but an eight-year-old has no authority yeah. or power. Anyway, exactly. just ask questions. Like, okay. uh-huh. <laughs> so what happened was we came to Kenya and he had a cinema in South Africa. Oh, yes. And that cinema... He sold it. Uh, fortunately, it was early. It was the 1950s. There okay. were no exchange controls okay. or anything, you okay. know. So he sold it. He didn't know what business to go into in Kenya. So he was so able to sell it there? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So so he said the cinema, somebody told him the cinema's available. He says, no, television is going to come in in a few years. Oh. And cinemas will not do well in the long run. Okay. So that was out. Mm. Then one day, as he was, he was just a visitor here. I mean, you're settling in, right? Right. So he went to a, all the dry cleaners were owned by Europeans in those days. So he went to a dry cleaner on Konange Street, mm-hmm. which was then I forget the name. So he had to wait in a line outside Konange Street to enter the shop. When he entered the shop, he says, "I want the suit for cleaning," and they said, "It'll be ready in one week." He says, "I want it in 24 hours." They said, oh, you must be joking. One it's week? One week to clean a suit. So, <laughs> oh, like okay. I say, it's the courage and entrepreneurship of my father. He says, I don't need a feasibility. I'm, I'm going do into it. dry cleaning. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, as Yusuf was mentioning, uh, Koinange Street, yeah. back in the day, right. his name was actually Sadler Street. Sadler Street. Sadler. Named right. after James Sadler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, you know, it's, it's just amazing the amount of history yeah. on some of these CBD streets. That's right. Yeah. And the vision your father yeah. had yeah. in yeah. saying we need to pivot. Absolutely. And Absolutely. for me, it's, it's, it's surprising because, you know, your ordinary entrepreneur would say, I'm running this in South Africa. It's what I know. Mm. I need to continue the same. But the vision he saw that the landscape was changing. Absolutely. Television was coming. Consumption patterns today media is also affected by the rise of digitization Absolutely. so that foresight is it's 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 quite incredible tell us about the initial days at white rose you know um we started off on what was then delamere avenue which is now kenyatta avenue <laughs> 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 and um, we had our first branch there he built a factory in the industrial area and um he did some very interesting thing because his focus was even at that time on the staff and his he always he said had a play uh, a major role in our lives because he said that uh, i want to break the racial barriers the emergency had just begun mm-hmm. 6 months after we arrived here oh, wow. but he had that faith he says there's greater hope in kenya than in south africa i don't know why again it's intuition is it uh, the courage of an entrepreneur to say I'm willing to take those risks? Right. And so he, um, so he, he opened this dry cleaning business and he sent all his senior staff for training. The training could only take place in South Africa at that time. Oh. So he trained them in dry cleaning technology and everything else. And then um, he he fought. You know he he was he was such a, a social activist that he said, I want to play a part in the struggle for freedom in Kenya. And he says, the mama struggle 
is wonderful. So what he did, there was uh, Atru Kapila and Dennis Pritt, right. who were the lawyers mm. for Kenyatta. They wanted to have a meeting in Nairobi, and they were worried that the government would arrest them. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. So they, so my father was with them and said, "Okay, why don't you meet at our house?" So he had a party at home, so that all the uh, the, the lawyers could meet. So you know, he did his small bit, but he did it with gusto. Right. <laughs> and um, so he, that was one. Then he also helped Zekenimata uh, when he was in Maralal. Right. And also he says, I want to fight racism in every way. So he chose me as his guinea pig. <laughs> you know what he did? He sent me to the first multiracial school in Kenya. Okay. The governor, the governor, the governor of Kenya right. was very supportive of this experiment. It was an experiment of multiracial education. Okay. And he gave part of government house land Oh. to the school to start near the Girl Guides headquarters. Right. You'll see Hospital Hill School. So he sent me there and he says, I want you to see about meritorious uh, academic performance. Okay. You'll see that we're all the same. Yes. So it was so important for me in my life and it just broke every barrier that he saw. He broke it in the small way or with the family. With whatever, considering what he'd seen in South Africa. That's right, yes. So it was, it's, it really, uh, it, it was part of his values. Wow. That I need to do this in this country, you know. And you no, know, it's very interesting, Ken, coming to think of it, that we saw what happened in South Africa and then we decided we are going to move. And then you move and come and be part of the fight that you have seen and now you make it a personal endeavor to actually make a change. I know. I think that we can see where the 72 years have come from. Eh? I mean, it's, 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 it's absolutely fascinating. And, you know, in many times when you talk about entrepreneurs right. and founders, we always talk about uh, Schumpeter's. Mm. Uh, the idea of an entrepreneur has an appetite for risk. But what I'm hearing um, from Yusuf is beyond risk, yeah. there's an element of social justice True. that's coupled. So mm. African entrepreneurship is not just the pursuit of risk, but also risk with a common good objective. Mm-hmm. And the experiment that Yusuf was taken through going through Hospital <laughs> Hill, <laughs> you know, that was, and for me that's was considered the top school. Yeah. Absolutely. Especially in, in 1952, 1952, the only one existing wow. during the emergency. Right. Which is surprising. I wish we'd have had your dad on this show <laughs> <laughs> one day. <laughs> that's interesting because he right. died mm-hmm. The same month that Mandela was released oh. from South Africa, oh, wow. that means okay. he would have had forty years of yeah. apartheid living, and he says, "I've saved you and the family, oh, all of us, from the living in that country." Well, that that is so interesting. True. Very interesting. So, nearly seventy-two years. What has distinguished White Rose? I think uh, we discussed with Ken time and over again how volatile markets are mm. and I remember um, I attended uh, one of the end year uh, chairman's parties uh, for one of the banks and I remember uh, one of the speakers Sunny saying how things that happen in the market are not new they happen and they happen and they happen so you have seen uh, uh, financial meltdowns you have seen government changes. You have seen tax regulations. What is the resilience for 72 years? Phew, you're <laughs> right. They've been through everything. <laughs> My father for the first 15, 20 <laughs> years and then us who took over. Mm-hmm. And I think the focus was basically on your staff. Right. Nurture them. Educate them. Train them make them feel part of the organization. And it's no point just saying in theory, you are family. No, there's much more than that. So I think one of the most unique features was the, was the, um, uh, the, um, the participation of staff in, in decision making. Right. So the sweeper and the receptionist Mm -hmm. and the supervisor Everyone participated in decisions making, decision making, strategy of the company. 
and that gave us gave them a sense of ownership of the company True. and that ownership of the company i think brought in the resilience Mm-hmm. to deal with all the issues that we faced 6 7 elections right ups and downs of mm-hmm. the economy the devaluation of the kenya shilling interest rates and recently the, there's so many issues that come up that could hurt a business right and there's there's a sort of built-in resilience and i've always thought to myself what what is and i think it's the attitude to the staff right. and their sense of participation mm-hmm. which brought in their sense of ownership Right. And that ownership of them in the company I think builds that resilience. This is my assessment. So I I can say that is a proven fact because you see in science they only say hypothesis testing. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you, you know when you talk about strategic planning in many companies today mm. uh, not just family businesses but also your normal even the blue chips it's all about executives going to Naivasha going to Mombasa mm-hmm. coming up with a set of plans coming back to Nairobi in fact the word they use is cascading <laughs> to <laughs> cascade it to the employees but what i'm hearing yusuf saying is everybody needs to speak into the strategy mm-hmm. even the person the receptionist even the person at the gate everybody interacts with the customer and there are some things the c suite might not see whether it's the bank teller right. they interact with the foot soldiers right. so having everybody they may not f- always physically be there in naivasha but their input needs to be put together right. and it needs to inform the plan only then can you have a very resilient plan that when people start on it everybody have signed on to it. to it absolutely yeah. and you know you can get these strategy meetings a lot of theory mm. <laughs> uh, you know one of our mission statements is uh, ethical behavior this right. and that it's all theory yeah until you actually bring it down and i think the attitude and approach of the leadership right influences them more than anything else on how to behave how to be in a business and what is a business that's a family business mm-hmm. but it's an extended family right and it's not lip service to we are all one family no, no. we we live it we live that right and this has been i think and i'm wondering that probably is the reason why it's built that resilience and i think it's a lot up to the leadership uh, with my father's my brother whoever has run the business at that time has always had this as a focal point in the company so ownership of uh, and through through behavior because it's all feelings you know even even the this other issues that could turn up in a strategy and it's just you go to the strategy you've had lovely meals you come back and that's gone <laughs> there's nothing really changed fundamentally right and you're absolutely right and leadership matters as you've said mm. and on top of leadership you've had the opportunity of attending the Harvard Business School's yes. entrepreneurship program if you could summarize one thing that you really took out from that program that helped you in as you governed the business what would that be you know um they started the program with saying a few things which is which is bit frightening they say that 60% of family businesses worldwide do not survive the second generation mm-hmm. and they said they talked about it through case studies they talked about uh, how family emotions get involved in business and that could really be a problem for that business you won't survive because then the emotions come in and you have issues and then you lose focus on the business and you're dealing with family issues so i'll give you one example dupont chemicals it was one of the case studies right now they in the 1930s or 40s i don't exactly know when had huge issues in their family and that they were ready to go bankrupt oh. 1930s so they got an outside consultant and the outside consultant said they want he wants them to think about separating management from ownership and that takes time and it takes effort yes. but finally the decision was that no dupont family member would ever work in management in the dupont company Today it's one of the largest global chemical company in the world. 
it survived because there were certain decisions taken with outside consultants or whatever and that's my biggest lesson right. and i said i think after the harvard business school that i'm going to aim for that mm-hmm. and we slowly work towards it and it's a difficult path but it is possible because what you do is that the family are on the board management are totally accountable but they're all external management no family members if family members want to join the business they have to apply and apply and meet the criteria of anyone else who's applying for that job they may not get the job they may get the job and and um and if the family member does get the job his salary should be assessed by an outside auditor or two auditors right that means everything is transparent and everything is market mm-hmm. so i think it took a lot of effort because we had to have much more frequent uh, directors meetings just to make sure that we monitoring this process this transition to having separating management from ownership seems to have succeeded we still in the process right. but i think now we're part of 90% there that's absolutely incredible and i think um african especially african owned uh, family businesses that tends to be uh the problem where the founder does an excellent job um but upon his demise um there's almost lack of that estate planning lack of that um vision on yeah. the business beyond the founder absolutely do you think and for me as an economist it has economic impacts when i think of biz- family businesses in kenya that struggle uh, particularly negotiating beyond the founder where they have court cases which means that even the employees who work for these companies end up being stranded do you think it would be too much if the government would say there needs to be a mandatory mm-hmm. estate planning for at least for biz- family businesses that employ maybe over 50 50 people do you think that would be i don't you know i think it has to come from our, our own value system mm-hmm. rather than the government maintaining it because you know if the government said everyone has to have a will mm. that will could be contested and it usually is because the, the the estate planning hasn't been done correctly you know there are some basic principles in preparing your estate planning number one, we feel that you know the culture and this is indian and african right the culture is that your daughters don't get any inheritance they are looked after by their husbands mm. and that is very unfair it's gender inequality and mm. i think that is very this this is just one aspect mm. the other one is to have equity within the family as well and uh, no biases um um and I, like i said the family members are, can can if they want to apply for a job they can apply but i think that what is important in estate planning is that you don't only leave a financial will right you leave a values will because what are you giving your kids mm-hmm. and grandkids you're giving them money right it could be squandered it anything can happen but it has to be attached to values So my personal example we spent two weekends in Naivasha in a retreat mm. just the family elderly middle and the grandchildren right. and we discussed values and we had an external consultant but very close family member whom we trusted and we discussed all the values that we treasure and we should continue continue treasuring mm-hmm. every one of the family members have signed the values list wow and we practice it because you know there's one time my my grandson says i i i i i don't like to wait in queues i don't i don't have the patience so i said isn't that a value we should develop mm-hmm. patience because it applies to so many things in life then there's another value of effective communication so we brought out a nonviolent communication there's a lot of books written on nonviolent communication again an important value if you want to communicate do it correctly mm-hmm. don't uh, don't label people you did something wrong you say that i feel upset when this happened mm. there's a huge difference in the communication style so that that particular retreat covered all these issues so even when you go to a hotel and you want to suddenly put a towel in the suitcase 
you test it. You <laughs> test it for every small thing, even if it's a soap. Right. So you know, you, it's somehow it's a continuous learning process for the whole family. That you always learn. And you see, Yusuf, I'm actually going through uh, the preparation that we had, and I'm seeing the number of staff who's ac- who've actually risen to the position of managing director. Abdullah Seiman, from being supervisor, mm. he's now the managing director of the group. Absolutely. We have Anthony Chege, who's now the chief accountant. People who came in as a receptionist and is now the head of HR. Absolutely. Like you're really walking and talking, <laughs> talking the walk, walking the talk, <laughs> walking the talk, which is absolutely very, very inspiring. But I'm sure there have been challenges along the road. You know, we've now started getting a, 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 a staff from directly from university. Yeah, it's, um, Simon Abuga, directly from university, but he's at the lower level. But mm-hmm. we we knew that he will eventually be our marketing manager. So he's been, we've focused on, on, on training. He's doing a course at university today, even now, on marketing. And the same thing with Abdullah. He was a supervisor. Then he ran our Uganda operations. Right. And now his group CEO. So these are all people who've been in the company and part of this values they yes. feel. They feel close to the company. They feel ownership of it. You know, I'm just uh, looking at uh, Nyambura's facial expression. And yeah. She's absolutely I astounded. Am, I am in shock. Uh, because in this world of the Gen Zs, yeah. where I they know. say everything is now and now. Yeah. I know. And, you know, you come and do your one, two years yeah. and moving on. So when yeah. I look at, you know, some of the names you've mentioned, people who have been there for 24 years, right. 20 years, and it goes back to values. Yeah. That sense of belonging, not just lip service. Yeah. But actual, even in practice, mm-hmm. right. being it's, it's absolutely, it's and, absolutely and amazing. Pride in the company, and so you offer the finest quality. You make sure that everything is perfect, and right. be a bit of a perfectionist. <laughs> <laughs> we talked about that, yes. <laughs> uh, so I'm thinking, um, you have been a volunteer for most of your adult life, yeah, and uh, quite a number of institutions. So what motivated that? Well, I can I. You you definitely did tell us how you are social experiment by your dad. Mm. So is that something that you've uh, social experiment, <laughs> not guinea pig? Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is that is that some of the things that motivated you? Yeah, you know, it was this connection with Mahatma Gandhi, mm-hmm. His Highness, His Highness always, His Highness the Aga Khan always talked about pluralism. Embrace diversity. Don't just accept or tolerate. Mm-hmm. Embrace. You will learn from people who are different from you. Mahatma Gandhi, again, he was there for for a Muslim right. uh, uh, mm-hmm. case, and he himself is Hindu. Right. And he taught my uncle okay. at Tolstoy Farm in Johannesburg. Right. So those influences were very, very strong with us, because half my family are vegetarians because yes. of this connection with mm. Mahatma Gandhi. So, so, so I think that that it sort of built into us. For example, we started for the Harvard Business School. What shocked me, they never talked about social enterprises. It oh. wasn't on their curriculum. Okay. It was making money, making money, making money. Yeah. But it was after three or four years with my prodding that they decided to talk about social enterprises and they used Honey Care Africa as a, as a, case, as a study. case study. Yeah. Because what we did, we, estab- we uh, built hives that women can access okay. at eye level. You don't have to go up into yeah. the tree. And 20,000 women, mainly women, mainly women, started earning an income because you can't have health initiatives, education initiatives, when they can't pay the fees for hospital, they can't, they can't pay the fees for school, school and they don't have an income. So really speaking, it's a multi-input approach. And I said, let's do this experiment of honey care for corporate sector to have this to have it an all-encompassing holistic approach to development and so there's voluntary organizations that is something that (laughs) I've been involved in several of them yes one was the Aga Khan Foundation um, where I was the chairman for East Africa yes it's had a huge impact I can't talk about all the projects but they did an impact study 
three million people in Kenya, Uganda, and Tanzania have benefited from the Aga Khan Foundation. This, some of these messages are not well communicated. They should be communicated right. because it's it's a huge thing. Right. And they also looked at the multi-input area development, which is health, education, mm-hmm. water, uh, civil society development. You're because right. even civil society, as I mentioned earlier, they can play a part in the safety nets in a market economy. That's true. We don't think about some of these things. And that's why I got involved in civil society organizations like the, S- the Children's Fund and some other mm-hmm. things that are put in there. But the Aga Khan Foundation has influenced my thinking a lot. So we were, you know, it's basically rural development right. and some urban development. But the fascinating thing which I learned a lot from was being a trustee on the international board of the Aga Khan University. Right. It's got teaching sites in six countries. We're basically in East Africa, Kenya, Uganda, Tanzania, mm-hmm. and it's uh, nursing and medicine. Right. But we've also got few graduate schools. One is a graduate school of media and communications, yes. and the other one is the uh, uh, early childhood development. Mm-hmm. Those are the two graduate areas, right? Yes. And um, and there were some interesting issues that turn up when you're doing the the the, the uh, curriculum. Yeah, the curriculum. And one thing that I felt strongly about was that doctors and nurses, the attitude of doctors to nurses. Oh, all right. And I said, how do you solve that problem that that they should they have? Both. Because they're the, f- the nurses are the frontline service True. providers. Yeah. So this curriculum, nurses and doctors study the first year or six months together, together. but they meet every Friday to discuss what they're studying. Oh. So would you ever treat a fellow classmate Any anything other than with respect? Think about it. So those wow. are the issues. You've got to look at the social issues. What issues, not just any other nursing school, not yeah, just any just other not medical any school, but bring in those other aspects, you know? And you've got to know what's happening on the ground to be able to address them through education. And one thing, uh, you have talked about education and what is happening on the ground. And one thing uh, we can see right now that is fast approaching is technology and AI. <laughs> You know, there's pros and cons. Right. Because I think on the one hand, the pros are big. Mm-hmm. Those, as far as job losses are concerned, those who are technologically savvy right. are going to do very well. Those that are not are going to fall by the wayside. But right. the government recently announced that they're going to build tech colleges. Right. And that will solve a lot of the problems. Mm-hmm. But let's not forget the positives of AI and technology. It can increase productivity in the whole country Mm -hmm. because it can enhance efficiencies in in, in, uh, uh, your businesses. It can have a huge impact on education and health. These are, to me, it could impact on our GDP in the long run. Those are the positives. But if we don't have government regulations Mm -hmm. and everyone's looking at those regulations, even in America and elsewhere, that it could be misused and cause a lot of harm. Now, in, in parting short, there's a young entrepreneur who's listening to you right now yeah. and says, I want to be the next Yusuf. <laughs> what books would you recommend for a budding young entrepreneur? You know, there are a few that I've made a note of. Um, and I feel that, you know, just reading books right. about business and leadership, not enough. You must realize that you are... You are you are dealing with s- in societies. Right. If you don't understand anthropology, sociology, understand how people tick, yeah. what operates, how do cultures develop, mm-hmm. your business is relying on that information. That's and true. if you're ignorant of that, you're working in isolation. I don't know. And that brings in this issue of staff, yeah. ownership. It's right. a cultural issue. Mm-hmm. Because you also find out that they love stories. Kenyans love stories. Right. And if you approach with stories, they just love it. They love the company. Where did you learn that stories are important to the culture here? Mm -hmm. From books you read. And that's why I'm saying I've I've, I've thought about two or three books. Um, Two of them are related to business directly. One is Oversubscribed Mm -hmm. by Daniel Daniel Priestley. Mm -hmm. 
It's an amazing book on marketing. It really is good. Right. I've made several copies for our marketing people okay. to look at. Mm -hmm. Then the other one is Up and Ahead by Sunny Bindra, a local author. Right. It's brilliant. When you talk about strategies going right. to Navasha, yeah. that book will just turn everything you're thinking about strategies. Mm -hmm. And the third one is what I'm talking about, which is, you know, until you have a, a mental state that is being in the moment, you can be so much more productive rather than fretting about guilt of the past or fear of the future. If you're in the moment, to me, that is the path to happiness. We're all aiming for happiness. Doesn't come through money. It comes through a state of mind. Right. And that's why I've suggested Eckhart Tolle because he's influenced me a great deal. Wow. Uh, one more thing. What would you recommend for family businesses who aspire to actually be very great? And, you know, uh, in this economy, what would you recommend for family businesses? The family businesses oh, who to give are them aspiring <laughs> to, to give actually, them advice. Yes, who are aiming to be great. Okay. I've First of all, I think I talked about equity. Right. Um, between your children, siblings. Right. Number two is, I think I've talked about some of the issues already, separating management from ownership. Uh, work towards that. And also salaries that you pay family members. Right. Make sure that they don't demand extra shares because they're working in the company. That's the biggest problem you're going to find. <laughs> I worked in this company and I own more I need more shares. Right. No, you've received a salary. Right. But if you if you if you give them the salary that external auditors have confirmed that that's the market salary, that's they've got no complaints. Right. Okay, unless they get shares as bonuses. Yeah. Or they buy the shares. Yeah. Okay. Or they buy the shares. <laughs> right. But that should be the approval for all the family. Right. Because they may lose control to uh, that one sibling. That's true. So, you know, the key issues here are transparency okay. and equity. Right. Total transparency. Everyone in the family should know what your will says. Everything of the estate planning your family should participate in. That's my thinking. It could be right. It could be wrong. <laughs> I don't know, for a company that has existed for 72 years, <laughs> we can say there's a bit of right that is happening right there. Yeah, and also have, have a, a, a good mentor. Right. A mentor. Then if you've got a board of directors, if you grow a little larger, make sure you have external advice, not just family members. It really helps. Okay. So I know we were discussing before uh, the show that I can read more about Yusuf, and uh, you're telling us your story. <laughs> And you just began. I need an inspiration to start <laughs> my, my memoirs. But you know, this whole process of preparing for this interview, yeah. it's helped me to now work on my memoirs with seriousness. Okay. That is absolutely <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> Can we have anything to add? Our time is up, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, if there is one benefit of being on financial focus right. is it forces you to think hard. Yo. about what you've done and what you want to do. Let me tell yeah. you. <laughs> I, I have learned today. Like <laughs> I'm definitely getting the memoir for sure. And uh, we come to the end of Financial Forecast on this beautiful Tuesday evening. I hope you have really gotten inspiration. You've learned something. Yusuf Keshavji, uh, who is a director at White Rose and Ken... <laughs> shareholder, sorry, shareholder at uh, White Rose, and thank you for giving us the time. Thank you for coming. Thank You're you welcome. for educating us. Thank you us. for calling me. Thank really you for the advice. Uh, <laughs> we shall be reaching out to you, and uh, we shall see if at all what you've told us is actually Good. we are going to implement My that. My pleasure. Always right. be available. Right, and you can listen to this episode of Financial Forecast and every other. Uh, episode of Financial Forecast at, on our Capital FM SoundCloud page and anywhere you get your podcast from. It is now 7.38. It is time for the hype with Manjera. For us, it is good evening. Have a beautiful week and let's do it. Step up and shine. It's that time of the year to win big with Kiwi. Stand a chance to win